come to life hurts, God heals. I'm one of your hosts, Kim Ward. And I'm your other host, Kurt Flagel. And on this particular episode, we have the privilege and the pleasure to talk with Neil Benson. And we get to listen to Neil's story, a story that's all about breaking free from family patterns of behaviors. I don't know if anyone else besides Kim and I have things from your family history that you would choose not to repeat or you're hoping to not repeat, that you want to break free from those things that your parents did or even their grandparents did. And this is where Neil's story really is powerful. Neil is an example of how God can break us free from the patterns of behavior that have trapped our families for generations. We invite you to listen in as we talk to Neil. Neil, welcome to Life Fruits God Heals. Thanks, Kurt. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Kim. Thanks for letting me be with you guys. Yeah, it's really cool to reconnect. It's been an, a number of years since we've talked. For sure. I think the last time we bumped into each other at a conference, and I don't even remember what conference we were at. I just remember hearing you share you were going to plant a church. I was stoked. I mean, I feel like the Central Coast is such a dark area, but I was just excited to hear you were going up to that area. Yeah, it's it's been a journey for sure here. I guess I've described it for years as hard spiritual ground. I think there was a there was a a survey or a poll done years ago that said we were number two in the country along the Central Coast from Santa Barbara to I think Monterey that we were number two in the country for the highest ratio of never-churched people who had never been in a church. One thing we say here in Ventura is it's 72 and sunny, so why do people need God? Yes, that is true. But, you know, you mentioned your story that you've had brokenness and struggle in your own story. So, yeah, we would love to hear a little bit about what you're talking about. Yeah, so I was born in a small town in Southern California called Los Angeles. I think some (laughs) people have heard of it before. And we moved to a town called Santa Clarita, which is where Magic Mountain is famous for. You kind of had that ideal American family. You know, dad and mom were both teachers. I have an older sister who's 18 months older than me. I was the baby of the family. And when I was about a year and a half or two years old, My dad was riding his motorcycle. And these are obviously stories that I've been told. You know, I don't remember. So dad was riding his motorcycle up the canyon and ended up getting in a pretty bad motorcycle wreck. He got taken to the hospital. The family had to bring pictures of my dad so they could reconstruct his face. And while my dad was in the hospital, my mom went to visit him one day. And one of those times while she was visiting him, his girlfriend was there. And he was in a coma. He didn't know that my mom had met his girlfriend. And as my mom has told me the story, she said, you know, Neil, I just tried to not say anything. I tried to go on with our marriage. I wanted to save our marriage. I wanted to do it for you and your sister, but I couldn't. And so when I was about three or four years old, my mom leaves my dad. We leave Santa Clarita. We move to Big Bear Lake, California. We move in with my grandma. So it's my grandma and I living in one room, my mom and my sister living in one room. We share a two-bedroom home with my grandma. And my first memory of my dad that I have is he came to our home in Big Bear Lake. I don't exactly know what was happening with custody, but I remember being inside the house and in the front yard 
my dad's twisting my mom's arm. He's pushing her on the ground. My mom's screaming for him to stop. She's crying. And the phrase I remember her saying time and time again was just go with him. I'll get you back. Just go with him. I'll get you back. And so it was this really interesting situation where my mom's screaming and crying, my primary caregiver and my dad, who I don't see that often is taking my sister and I putting us in his truck and we're going back to his home with him. And from there, my mom eventually gets us back. She gets what I would call primary custody, you know, for my age group, it was usually the mom got the kid and then the dad had like weekends or something. Well, because they lived a couple hours away from each other, uh, my mom was able to get full-time custody of us. We'd go to my dad's house every other weekend. And my life was this huge like, like disconnect. You could almost have not two opposite ends of the spectrum. During the divorce, my mom goes to an evangelical church. She gives her life to Christ. And so when we're in Big Bear Lake, she's taking my sister and I to church. And so one weekend I go to church with my mom. And then the next weekend I go to the swap meet with my dad. And it's just this like huge disconnect growing up. And then what happened for me is I saw the way my dad was living and I said, I'm never going to be like him. But the problem as, as a 12, 13 year old kid, I wanted to fit in. And so I slowly stopped going to church. I started drinking. I started doing drugs. I learned in high school that if I could sell drugs, that I could make a little money. And from there, a lot, a lot of it, my life becomes a wreck. First time I get arrested was as a 15 year old. And I got arrested when I was 17 for buying uh, alcohol underage. And then when I was 19, I was down in Oceanside partying for the weekend, been drinking all weekend. And then I was drinking and driving back to Big Bear. I sort of pass out at the wheel and uh, I get a DUI. My friend who's sitting shotgun in the car with me, neither of us are wearing seatbelts. Both of us have a beer in our hand. He hits his head on the windshield. I, I hit my face on the steering wheel. Uh, we flee the scene. I get arrested down the, down the street. It's one of those like, don't pass, go, go directly to jail. And so, yeah, as a 19-year-old, I was charged with two felonies, felony hit and run causing death or bodily injury, felony DUI causing death or bodily injury, and then a handful of, of like underage drinking and drunken public charges. And they really tried to make an example of the hometown kid who was just a screw up for the last several years. Uh, I was looking at doing three to five years in prison. And, and here's the crazy part. Here's where God intervenes. As I get released, I go to church with my mom one day and a lady comes up to me and she says, Neil, I had a dream that you were telling thousands of people about Jesus. And I had learned growing up in a home, uh, my grandma is a German immigrant. I had learned to be respectful to people. And so I listened and smiled, but deep down inside, I was like, I want none of that, God. God, this isn't my plan for my life. And from there, you would kind of think at that point, it's like, okay, you're going to do something different, right? And the answer is no. I go to my court hearing, I get both felonies dropped, and I just go back to my same lifestyle. I go back to drinking. I go back to doing drugs. It was a couple months after that, I was partying in Oceanside again. I get arrested again. And this time I'm in the San Marcos, in the Vista County Jail, excuse me. And I'd been arrested and I thought, oh man, I'm going to do a year for violating my probation. And so while I'm sitting in a jail cell, I kind of pull a Hail Mary 
I'd call it the Raiders in the fourth quarter, you know, close your eyes and throw the football. (laughs) Sorry for all the Raiders fans out there. I'm a Chargers fan. And yeah, so I'm sitting in a jail cell and I think of this guy named God who I met when I was five years old and it was my last, was my last straw. I didn't know what else to do. And so I prayed a prayer. There's probably some swear words in there. And I said, God, if you're real, if you get me out of here, I'll do whatever you want. Now, I got to pause the story for you guys right here. I did not think that it meant being a pastor. I thought it meant like, I'm gonna go to church. I'm gonna throw 20 bucks in the plate. I'll go on Christmas and Easter. We're good, God, right? Like, that's a good deal. But God said, I got a different plan, Neil. And he answered that prayer. And so I went up to the bailiff. I'd gone through all the stations. I'd done it before. You guys, my fourth time being arrested. I knew, I knew how it went. And the bailiff was sending everyone to the right. She slid me my items. She said, here's all your items. Go over there. The bailiff will be around in five minutes to let you out. And I just thought, oh, he's real. Like God is real. And I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to handle it. I didn't know... I didn't know anything. I mean, I was 20 years old and I finally surrendered my life to Christ. And so that's, that's a lot of my backstory of meeting Jesus. When you said that your dad took you and your mom just said, just go with him. How long were you with your dad? I don't, I was so young. I don't remember. But what I do remember is I never wanted to be at his house or I rarely wanted to be there. I wanted to stay with my mom. I knew the environment of her home was a different environment than his. Uh, So like my sister and I talk about it a lot now that we're adults. Uh, One of the things we noticed about my dad's house is there was one time, three weekends in a row, we went and there were like different women living with him. Growing up as children, we thought drinking and driving was normal. Our, Our dad would drink and drive all the time. And so we just thought that was normal. So it's no wonder I got a DUI. Why do you think, like you said that you didn't want to be like him, right? Yeah, yeah. You swore that you wouldn't be like him. Yet what I'm hearing from your story is that you did become like him in those years, acted like him. How did you move into the very lifestyle of someone you swore you wouldn't be like? I think that's a great question because I came exactly like him. I was drinking, I was drinking and driving. My dad and I were having a conversation one time. It was right after I turned 18. And I was like, hey, I, I never thought I was going to make my 18th birthday, just the way, the way I'm living my life. And he said something to me. He's like, son, I never thought I'd turn 21. And I was like, oh, wow, this is crazy. And I think the reason I became like him is so often we focus on something and I focused on not being like him, but because that's what I was looking at, that's what I became. I, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, maybe a good illustration, but where I live, there's strawberry fields. And a lot of times on the freeway, I point to my kids, look at the strawberry fields. And I start looking and I'm driving and I start hitting the rubble strip because where I'm looking is where I'm going. And so, because I'm looking at the strawberries, that's, I start to drift. I veer in that direction. So I think that's one of the reasons. I think another reason is I cared so much about fitting in as a high school student. And that's the group I got connected with. When I was five years old, I started skiing. And when I was 12 years old, I started snowboarding. So I started snowboarding 30 years ago before snowboarding was cool. But I just wanted to do it. I was like, that looks amazing. But the community of snowboarders, it had a lot of drinking. It had a lot of drug use. It was a high party scene. I mean, let's be realistic. You live in the mountains where there's nothing to do. 
Like, what are you going to do? And so I fell into this group and I started living this lifestyle and created this persona of that's who I am. I, I was looking at the wrong example. I didn't have a good example and I didn't know who to look to for the right example. And so just like they say, water runs downhill, I took the easiest path. Mm. I recognize that, you know, you're, you're looking at your dad saying, I'm not going to be like him, but your focus is, is right on the thing that you don't want to be like. Reminds me of my cousin at 15 was teaching me to ride a dirt bike. And he was a Christ follower. I was not at that age. And he was just wise beyond his years at 15 there's a sand pit right behind my house and we're sitting down in there. I'm on this dirt bike and he says, okay, I'm going to teach you the gears, the brakes, everything. But let me give you this advice first. When you start going after I've taught you all that, inevitably you're going to come to a point, there's an obstacle in your path. Your temptation is going to be to look at the obstacle. Don't. Look at the path, the way around the obstacle, because wherever your focus is, that's where you're going. And that was the advice of my 15-year-old cousin that I've never forgotten. And that's what I hear you saying. So true. Look to where you want to go. How many of us do that when it comes to sin, right? We spend our times wrestling against sin rather than wrestling with God, which is the name of Israel, right? He who wrestles with God the whole time, what we're really looking at is the thing we don't want to do. Yeah. And I think, I think what happens too in that is in our devotional life and in our prayer life, we spend all this time confessing the sin that we're struggling with, but all we're doing is constantly thinking about it. And so we have to take our eyes off of that sin, right? Uh, what did the author uh, to the Hebrew people say? Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. And it's so true. Where have we fixed our eyes? Mm. Yeah. You have dirt bikes and I learned it from horses. I did jumping for a little bit. And the one thing you learn is if you stare at that jump when you're heading towards it with your horse, that's a surefire way to have them dead stop right before it and you're going over their head. So if you stare at the obstacle, then... You get some really painful results. It's the same thing. You have to look where you want to head because then the horse is like, oh, okay, I trust you know what you're doing. So this obstacle in the way isn't a big deal. But if you stare at it, they think that, oh my gosh, this thing's going to eat me. Well, that's the horse's normal response to scary things. One of the leaders at Bethel talks about it all the time when it comes to people following in their parents' footsteps. He says you get so focused on what you don't want to be that you forget to focus on who you do want to be. What does the Bible say? As a man thinks in his heart, so he is. So if you're thinking about the negative and brokenness, then that's exactly what you become because that's where your heart is in that moment. So that makes sense. Now, obviously, Neil, your story doesn't stop there or we wouldn't be having this conversation. I never would have met you at Christian camp if your story ended with that one moment of coming to Jesus. So, I mean, what happens after? What was really cool is my sister let me move in with her in San Diego. And I started going to junior college or community college. I, I don't know exactly what it's called now. And I knew I needed to do something with my life. I knew if I was going to 
follow up on this promise. I'll do whatever you want, God. And so I started going to college and then I was getting ready. I wanted to transfer to SDSU. I wanted to go get a business degree. I wanted to own my own company. And like three months before that, I just feel God just come and do this. Just, I mean, he just slams me in a church service one day and the pastor's talking and he's talking about going to Bible school. I'd never heard the pastor talk about going to Bible school. He said, there's some of you right now, you need to go to Bible college and you're being disobedient to God. And I was like, man, I wonder who those people are. (laughs) Who's he talking to? And he was talking to me. God had been pushing me to go to Bible school. There was a guy that I worked with in the ministry at that church. We We served in children's ministry. We were putting tables away one day. And he said to me before the pastor had said this, he said, Neil, you need to be a pastor. And I, and I told you guys, I know how to be kind to people. I know how to be nice. That's probably a better word. I said, that's nice of you. And he said, no, I'm serious. And we got in a conversation. We'd, we'd known each other for a while. And I said, hey, bro, if you knew what I've done, you wouldn't be telling that to me. And he said, I don't, I don't care what you've done. And God doesn't either. And, you know, it was so interesting as I had started putting worldly parameters on me instead of looking at it with a heavenly perspective. And so I follow the prompting of God. I go to Bible college. I, I start attending Bible school. I mean, my life is radically, radically transformed. I start running into friends from high school and they're like, hey, man, can I buy something? I'm like, oh, I don't do that anymore. They're like, what? I was like, yeah, dude, I've been sober for a year and a half now. And they're like, but you still smoke weed, right? And I'm like, no, no, dude, I don't do anything anymore. Like, I mean, just this radical life transformation, uh, three years from the day that I get out of jail, the last time I get hired at a church to do an internship working with students. And before I got that internship, I was at church one day and I just had this sense of like God whispering to me, like, Neil, what if you went back and helped students who were struggling with what you struggled with? And so I have always felt that my call to ministry has been to help people to become the person that God has called them to be. And that's played out in a lot of ways. I mean, we could, we could talk a lot about the last 20 years of my life, but, but, you know, if I could give you some highlights on it during that internship, I met my wife. And I think part of the reason I met my wife is because I took a year off dating. I'd been hurt from dating. I had all these past baggage. I didn't know what a godly relationship looked like. And I needed to take a year to sit with the Lord and say, God, why are these sinful desires in me? And how come I can't control myself? And some of it is my family history. I come from a history of drunks and womanizers. So God's breaking these family chains, right? If we look at Romans chapter 11, he's grafting me in to the tree And so I I meet my wife. Uh, We're friends for a long time. We end up getting married. We take a call to Las Vegas to serve with students. You know, a lot of people are like, Neil, why are you moving to Vegas? And I was like, that's job security. Like Sin City, pastor, that's total job security. And during that time is when I really feel like I cut my teeth in ministry from 2004 to 2012. And Craig Groeschel, I think, says it best, you know, we were willing to do anything short of sin to help people find Jesus. Mm, wow. And then during that time in Vegas, if, if I can just share a little more, during that time in Vegas, I got invited to speak at a winter camp. And I didn't know what that meant. I, I didn't understand what it was. I mean, I teach students all the time, but uh, my buddy was working at a winter camp. He's like, hey, come teach. And, you know, it's just amazing that God opened this door for me 10 or 12 years ago to almost fulfill what that woman had said to me in church, you're going to be speaking to thousands of people. And, you know, I think about it now where I get this opportunity. I still, I still don't know why God lets me do it. 
And I love it. I love getting an opportunity to sit with students and tell them about the wild love of God that transformed my life, that impacted a 20-year-old in a jail cell to radically change his life to follow him. That's amazing. Yeah, that's where we met at Thousand Pines. I just remember going, I'm like, man, this guy has a story and like watching these kids that, you know, that I care about that I've been working with since December, seeing them like staring at you intently, which is kind of fun. And then hearing like what's standing out to them, where they feel like God's challenging them. We had so many things go wrong that week we were at camp. But even for me, like hearing your story, I was like, oh, this is so encouraging to hear another story of how God moves and how God works and how he takes our brokenness, the things that we think disqualify us, and then he turns them around. You know, you said that you told the guy, if you knew my story, you wouldn't be telling me to do this. And how many of us do that as if he doesn't know our story? Like, how dare you ask me to do this? Like, people are going to see my mess. It's encouraging to see, like, another example of God using our, as Kurt likes to say, our mess to become our message. Because mm. we wouldn't even be having this conversation if that hadn't happened. Yeah, and, and I think that's good what you're saying. What, I, what I've found, you know, working with students for almost two decades now, and that's not my primary responsibility anymore. It's still my heart. It's still my passion. I love it you know, students don't care what you know until they know that you care. And what I found too, is when I can come out and be the one right away to just share like the stories of my life that are screwed up, that are messy. I think what I've seen for people, it drops this wall of like, wait, I don't have to pretend to be like perfect around you. And I don't have to pretend to be someone I'm not. One of the wild things about this is when I started going back to school, right after I got out of jail, maybe a couple semesters in, one of the courses I had to take was a public speaking course. And you guys, it's the one course in college that I dropped out of. I just got freaked out. I'd go to class and I'd have to write this stuff down and I had to stand in front of people. And, and I used to talk really quick because I was nervous and my armpits would get sweaty. I know that never happens to anyone else. And I, I finally just said, I, I'm not doing this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find an elective or something that I can take so I don't have to take this communications class now you have to remember that like a year later, God says, Neil, you're going to go to Bible college. And, and I start working with students. And so I was so grateful for people who came alongside me and helped me to be comfortable with the uncomfortable. And what I realized in my life is I needed to step out of what I knew and lean into some new areas. Kim, it was great meeting you. I love Thousand Pines. There's a bunch of camps I could say, you know, on here that I love, but instead of talking about a camp, let's talk about what camp does. So what camp does is it provides a space for students to be who they are, it provides a space for them to be real, provides a space for them to rock climb and go to the pool and, you know, sit with their friends and play games and be competitive and do paintball. But really what camp does the whole time is it's breaking down walls and it's advancing our spiritual relationships by three to six months. Because you and I know if you and I just go to church on a Sunday morning, or if we just go to a small group, we do it on these like short terms, right? You know, Google, the, the set for a meeting is 50 minutes now, or you can choose short meetings for 25 minutes. If you were just to sit and do the math of, the, of Jesus and the disciples, you know, if you did some kind of quick, hot, dirty math of, of what they spent with Jesus, 
you know, what if they spent 12 hours a day, five days a week, let's say they took the weekend off, that's 60 hours a week, and they did 60 hours a week for for three years, right? I, I mean, like they spent thousands of hours with Jesus and we have to disciple people over coffee once a week. Camp provides this space for us to go and say like, hey, I'm struggling with it. What if 16-year-old Neil was invited to a camp and could say, hey, I'm, I'm trying to fit in. I'm, I'm doing drugs. I'm drinking. I'm, I'm making unwise decisions. Uh, I'm angry inside because I don't know how to deal with the fact that my friends have dads and I don't. And, you know, 17-year-old Neil who got mad that his 87-year-old grandma died. I was so mad at God, you guys. Well, now as an adult, I can go, she was 87. Like She lived a great life. But I just didn't have anyone that I was allowing to speak truth into my life. You said back, you know, when we started this, that you were focused on your dad not wanting to be him. And then finally coming to your heavenly father and seeing how much he loved you and how he viewed you, which was so much different from your earthly father. When you began to agree with your heavenly father's perspective, the vision that I heard, and you can correct me if I'm not hearing this right, but the vision I heard him give you was to break chains, to break the chains of your family, your family history, breaking the family curses, breaking the family patterns. And then you said that coming to a camp for these kids gives them space that they don't normally have and it drops the walls. So putting those things together, for you to be in that place, recognizing that God wants to break the chains off of you and being in a place where you're creating space for other people, kids, to, um, to allow their walls to drop Obviously, that was happening to you, that somewhere along the journey that you were looking to God to break those chains by making space in your own life to drop the walls. So is that accurate, first of all? Yeah, you no, know, you're totally tracking. And, you know, it's interesting as I look back on my family now, there's me and one cousin who've never been divorced. Everyone else is, has been divorced. I think I'm the only one in my family who's who's sober, who like has made a commitment to sobriety. And here's even the interesting thing, just, just to interject this. It's when I was living in San Diego, I had been sober for like a year or two. And my dad was visiting, my sister and I were living together. And I had told him, hey, dad, today today's a day. I've been sober for a year or two today on this day. And we went out to dinner later that night to a restaurant to grab some food. And we're ordering and my dad orders a beer and he's like, son, do you want a beer? And I was like, did you not hear what I just said? And so I think what what was a struggle is my dad wanted his son to be a drinking buddy and we never got that. And so I think what happened for me in my personal life, and especially I remember this when I started Bible school, is I had to be there at like 8 a.m. And so I'd wake up at like 536 in the morning and I'd sit on the floor. I'd read my Bible on my knees. Uh, there were times, you know, I know you never do this, but there were times I fell asleep reading my Bible because I was so tired. And, yes. But I started this practice of putting God first in my life, spending time with his word. And that's a practice I continue to this day. I try to read the Bible cover to cover every year. I don't do it in a sense of legalism, 
I have a lot of friends. They're like, I'm like, where are you reading? They're like, I've been studying Ephesians for the last six months. I'm like, dude, that's so cool. I, with my personality, it helps me to just go through the entirety of God's word. In addition to that, though, I've made space for other spiritual practices. Who was it that said when I was a child, I acted like a child and, you know, now I'm an adult. And so the interesting thing too, when I go to a camp now, I'm not the 28 year old funny youth pastor anymore. I could be all of their dad, like every single one of them. And so I get to come in as a spiritual father Mm. and it's just great. It's this transformation that God has shown me. And, And I felt like God say this to me during, during 2020, Neil, I need you to become a spiritual father. You're not a child anymore. It's time to be a spiritual father. And so it's a shift that I've made in my thinking and in my mentality. It's a shift I've made in my life and my leadership. It impacts how I interact with my wife, with my children, with my friends, with my church, and with my calendar, because I need to make sure that I have time and space to be a spiritual father. That also means I need to implement spiritual practices. I need to focus on, I need to focus on Sabbath. The Saturdays are Sabbath day. One of my favorite things is no social media. I, I don't I don't do that. One of the things I do on my phone is I don't allow notifications from any social media platform because I, I see my friends who are younger and their phone every time someone likes their post or comments on it, ding, 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 ding. And I just I don't want that distraction. I want to be focused on God. I've been working more into fasting. I struggle with fasting from food. That's a confession from a struggling evangelical. <laughs> For me, you could call it abstinence if you want. I'll give up sugar. I'll give up coffee. I'll give up soda. But I do that and I replace those times with prayer and setting my mind on the Lord. Uh, one thing that I love to do, I've been meditating on scripture a lot. I've been meditating on John 15. I just took a four-day, five, five-day, four-night backpacking trip in Yosemite with three guys from my small group, one guy from my neighborhood, and one of our outreach partners uh, that our church supports. And I planned a backpacking trip through Yosemite. Uh, we did like 30-plus trail miles, 55 miles is what my thing got for the entirety, not trail miles. Uh, you know, sleeping in the woods, cooking our own food, right, filtering our own water. And the coolest thing that we did was at almost every meal, we read John 15, one through seven. And then we talked about abiding in Christ. We talked about remaining in Christ. We talked about finding joy in Jesus. We talked about things in our life that, that we need to allow the Lord to prune because he is the vine dresser. And those are, those are things that I love doing now. Mm. You mentioned in that the meditation on scripture. What does that look like for you when you're alone? I mean, because meditation, that word can have a lot of different contexts in our culture. So for you, for your practice. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that you're asking that because I feel like the world has hijacked the word meditation. For me, I just look back to scripture. So I look to Psalm 1. It says, blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. And then it goes on to say, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law, he meditates day and night. And so one of the things that I love to do, and and there's two that I'm doing right now, I'm trying to add another one to, to see how it helps my spiritual growth. But one of the things I do is when I read scripture on a daily basis, I read it, and then I have a couple guys I'm discipling, and I send them one verse 
that I'm going to meditate on. And so one of the verses focusing on today was seeking the Lord. And so then throughout the day, I try to turn my mind back to seeking the Lord. I know this doesn't happen to you. I know you don't get frustrated when you're driving or, you know, mad at your bank account or upset with coworkers. That's not going to happen to anyone listening. But when you get to those times, you just, you're, you train your mind to say, well, I'm, gonna, I'm actually going to meditate on God's word. I'm not going to get mad at this person. I'm going to seek the Lord. And then in addition, what I've been doing is I've been praying for joy this month. I noticed I just wasn't as joyful as I once was. And I thought, what's stealing my joy? And in John 15, as I've been meditating on it, it says, and your joy will be complete. And I've said, oh, Lord, I want that. I want that joy. I want my joy to be complete in you. And I struggle with greed and coveting. Man, I can tell you right now, I want a 2020 Toyota Tacoma. I want a manual transmission. I want a V6, four-wheel drive, you know, access cab for my kids. I want to, I want, you know, I could tell you all my coveting. And, but what I want is I want my heart to find joy in the Lord. Because what I realize is even if I get that truck or that new snowboard or that new fishing rod that I want, I'm never going to be satisfied. My joy needs to be complete in Jesus. Mm. When I think about the word joy, there's a picture that develops in the difference between happiness and joy. And the picture is this boat on the surface of the ocean. And that boat, as it sails along, is pretty much powerless to its circumstances. So if the water is still, it's still. But if the water is turbulent, it's turbulent. But then under the surface, a submarine is moving along in that same direction. And it is in these deep, dark, pressure-filled depths. And yet it is not affected, not crushed by the weight and the pressure and the cold around it. And the question is, why is there a difference between the boat on the surface And the submarine and the depths, and the answer is the submarine is pressurized from within. It has a pressure from within it that allows it to withstand the outside circumstances, right? The external circumstances. The boat has no such protection. And so the boat represents happiness. Happiness is a victim of its happenings. But joy is literally the character of God abiding in us, pressurizing us from within. And so what you're talking about, practices of fasting, of practicing Sabbath, of meditating on scripture, meditating on certain passages and constantly keeping them in the forefront of your mind. So when circumstances come, you go back to those and reflect on those rather than the circumstances. That is the submarine. That is continuing to to be aware of God's presence and continuing to clothe ourselves as Romans 13, 14 says, be clothed in Christ. He is joy. So we get to put him on as clothes. And that's what you're doing through these practices. I think that's admirable. You are the sub. You refuse to be a victim to your happenings. And you, as Romans 8 says, are, are more than a conqueror. That's a great analogy, you know, because we think about it, right? Paul wrote to the church in Galatia, in Galatians chapter five, he said, joy is one of the fruit of the spirit that should be evident that the Holy Spirit has transformed us and and that should be shining to others. So I like that analogy. I'm going to preach that and And I'm going to note it here. I'm not giving you credit. (laughs) 
that's fine. There's nothing new under the sun. So, but that fruit of the spirit, if we've been in church in any length of time, and maybe this is just me and like what you were saying, maybe it's nobody else. But when I hear some people mention the fruit of the spirit, especially after I was in church for a season, the fruit of the spirit came across as a to-do list. I got to work harder at being joyful. I have to work harder being loving and faithful and good. And over the years, what God has shown me is, Kurt, no, the fruit, the evidence of the Spirit is literally the characteristics of the Spirit. Jesus gave himself for us on a cross. This is what love looks like. This is what love looks like. It gives itself away completely holding nothing back, not even his own life. And so the fruit of the Spirit is God's offering of grace, is here's my qualities, here's my completeness, and all you have to do is clothe yourself in it because you don't have to convince me to give them, you don't have to beg for them, because every moment I'm giving myself to you, and all I'm asking you to do is open up and let me in. And so often when we try to perform for those things, we're missing the point. We're working for God's pleasure, not from it. And the fruit of the Spirit is his joy and his pleasure. And he's like, I'm already joyful towards you. Will you please receive it? And when we receive it as a grace, as a gift, this is not about us. If we're asking the question, why do I deserve this, good or bad, why did I deserve this to happen? Then we're actually missing the point. Because this isn't about us at all. This is about God, and he is generous with himself, and he gives us his joy. He literally enjoys us. And what I love about what you said about practicing Sabbath is that is the purpose of Sabbath. Taking a day to do the things I enjoy, being constantly aware to invite God in to the things I'm doing that I enjoy so that I can experience him enjoying me, enjoying this thing. And I can then receive that joy and be filled with it, like that submarine pressurized from within. The beauty of Sabbath, and I think this is incredible for you, you know, as an Enneagram 3 who is an achiever or performer, that to practice Sabbath is learning to accept the fact that when I am completely unproductive, I am completely loved. We work from his pleasure rather than for it. And that's what Sabbath is there for. Yeah. And it's so good on the fruit of the spirit because it's not a to-do list. I have some trees in my backyard. I'm pretty fortunate where I live. I don't have to tell my avocado tree to make avocados. It's just a byproduct of the avocado tree. I don't have to tell my apricot tree or my grapefruit tree or my apple tree. I don't have to tell them what fruit to make. They do it. And so when we abide in the spirit, when we remain, just think of be, when we be with God, that's the natural outpouring. Mm. So good. That's what you're doing. And I, I just respect it, man. I'm, I'm really just in awe and just enjoying hearing your practices. It's encouraging. It's encouraging. Thanks. I appreciate that. Honestly, it's been so cool hearing your story and, you know, how God's moving and working in your life and the space you're making. I mean, honestly, it's even encouraging for me because three is where I'm supposed to go to when I'm being healthy, you know, when I'm moving forward in growth. So it's cool to see a three moving forward in health and making space and following after God's heart. Like that's, that's encouraging for me. It's really encouraging to, to see where God's worked and moved. I know we like to wrap this up by just asking you to pray for the people who are going to hear this. So if you don't mind. Yeah, I'd love to. And before I pray, I just want to thank you guys. Thank you for what you're doing. Thanks for uh, letting me share. You know, I would say it's my story, but it's God's story. It's his transformation in my life. Mm -hmm. And 
you know, I think we all want to move to that healthy place. That's why I love how you call it life hurts. God heals because God healed me. It, it took decades. Lord, I thank you for this time. I thank you for these moments. And I thank you for what you do in our lives. I thank you for how you shape us and mold us and move us and, and how it's your transforming work. And Lord, as we talked on John 15 for just a little, and we talked about spiritual practices, Lord, I pray that all of the people who are listening, Lord, I pray every single one of us, I pray that we would take time to remain in you, that we would slow our lives down. Lord, I pray that we would fix our eyes on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. I pray, Lord, that we would do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, we would consider others better than ourselves. And Lord, I pray we would surround ourselves with community. That's what so much of my story has been, this community who's come alongside me and loved me and constantly brought me to you. I think of the, the friends in Mark chapter two who brought their friend to the feet of Jesus, Lord. I thank you for people who have done that for me. And I pray that those who are listening, Lord, would be what Henry Nouwen calls as wounded healers. Yes. We've been hurt by life but we don't allow that to define us and we move forward in that. And we pray these things in the most precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 Neil, thank you for sharing your story with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. It was good hanging out with you guys. For sure. Yeah, it was great reconnecting after eight years yeah, or yeah. so. Man, it's been way too long, dude. I, you know, I feel like I defined things in COVID years and that's way too long. <laughs> well. We'll make sure it doesn't happen again on two levels, relationally yeah. and yeah. here. I'm sure yeah, there's yeah. more to the story. So, Yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me, man. This was great. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Life Hurts, God Heals. And if you're curious to know more about us and what we offer, we are part of a larger organization called Elevate Slow which is a disciple-making movement intent on seeing the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done for us, planted in every culture around the world. If you'd like more information, you can go to our website, elevateslow.com. That's elevateslo.com. And as always, please remember that you are God's beloved, so be loved.